Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. Uh, it is September the 11th, 2021. Um, and a couple of years ago, maybe little less, actually, uh, last year in August, we had Mike Rothschild on the show talking about the threat of QAnon. He had a new book out. He's a journalist focusing on these kinds of organizations. The Storm is Upon Us, How QAnon Became a Movement Cult, a Conspiracy Theory of Everything. Uh, I have to admit I'm slightly skeptical of the danger of QAnon, but what do I know? It doesn't seem as if the storm is honest yet. Anyway, Mike is back with uh, another interesting book. This one, Jewish Space Ladies, uh, not ladies, Jewish Space <laughs> Lasers, uh, The Rothschilds and 200 Years of Conspiracy Theories, which is a history of uh, this preoccupation with the Rothschilds. It's important to note that Mike himself is and isn't a Rothschild. He's talking to us from uh, Pasadena in California. Mike, you are an aunt a Rothschild. Tell us more. I, I am in that. That is my last name. And uh, I am not in any other way. Uh, no, no palaces, no wine, no family stables, uh, no art. Now you're standing like a conspiracy theory. <laughs> uh, no, and you well, don't have any castles in, uh, in Pasadena. Uh, there's only one and it's been turned into apartments. And uh, I'm not cool enough to live there. So these Rothschilds, why the obsession with them? They're an Ashkenazi Jewish family, very prominent and successful bankers. Why have you chosen to write a book about them? So as I started writing about conspiracy theories, uh, and this was about a decade ago, as they were starting to go from the fringe to the mainstream, that name kept coming up over and over. And of course, having that last name, I would get a lot of comments of, you know, oh, a Rothschild debunking conspiracy theories. The Matrix must be broken, you know, stuff like that. Or people accusing me of being part of the family or pretending to be part of the family. I, I knew none of that was true. But I wanted to know why this family, why, why is this name tossed around over and over and over? What have they actually done to earn it? And what haven't they done? And that was really the genesis of putting the book proposal together. And as I, as I went into the research, I found that the real life historical version of the Rothschilds is fascinating. The fake uh, conspiracy theory version of them is malevolent and uh, wealth hoarding to an almost absurd degree, but the actual Rothschilds are, are quite an interesting family. So tell us more about these Rothschilds. Where did they begin and, and how did they amass such economic power? Well, and they, they did. They amassed enormous economic power. The family really grew out of the family patriarch, Mayor Amschel Rothschild, who was a fairly successful banker who lived in the walled uh, Judengasse, the Jewish ghetto of Frankfurt. And under his watch, his family grew from a fairly well-off, but still very Jewish middle-class uh, dealer in coins and metals. And they made small-time loans and they did money changing. Basically, all of the things that Jewish families in the Holy Roman Empire did, because that's what they were allowed to do. His fortune grew when he began to administer the vast fortune of the Elector of Hesse, 
who was the the leader of the state of Hesse Kassel in the Roman Empire in the Holy Roman Empire. And of course, Hesse is where we get the term Hessian, uh, the mercenaries that England bought to fight in the American Revolution. That's one of the grievances in the Declaration of Independence. These foreign mercenaries who were fighting on American soil, they were loaned by the Elector of Hesse. So the Elector of Hesse had a massive, massive fortune. And he turned to Mayer and his son, Amschel Rothschild, to essentially hide that money and distribute it when Napoleon's forces uh, went into Frankfurt. So the Rothschilds made a huge amount of money very quickly by supplying the forces that were fighting against Napoleon. They built up a system of smuggling gold across the English Channel. They made loans. Uh, they, they did money changing. They uh, sold provisions to soldiers. So very quickly, the Rothschilds became one of the richest families in Europe. Uh, when Nathan Rothschild, who was the middle son of Mayer, died in 1836, he was the richest man in the world. So there was a massive amount of wealth accumulation very quickly built up around this catastrophic war. And whenever you have that, myth and conspiracy theory are going to follow. So they were a powerful family. And of course, uh, in a Europe rife with anti-Semitism, was all the conspiracy theories and hostility around the Rothschilds uh, associated with anti-Semitism? Were they seen as the quintessential Jewish banking exploitative family? They really were. And the, the early depictions of the family that you see in novels and cartoons in the first three decades of the 1800s, they're, they're mocking, but they're not cruel and they're not necessarily anti-Semitic. That starts to change in the late 1840s when you start to have the rise of socialism and then the revolutions of 1848. But early on, the Rothschilds were seen as a very visible, very obviously Jewish, wealthy family who had accumulated a lot of power very quickly and, and used that power to buy palaces, to refurbish castles, to build up massive art collections. So they were very conspicuous in their wealth. They, they made no real effort to hide it. And of course, it wasn't just the right that was critical of the Rothschilds and of their Jewish identity. The left was responsible as well. Marx wrote his enormously controversial on the Jewish question. Was there a difference, Mike, in the middle of the 19th century between the hostility towards the Rothschilds from the left and the right? The hostility towards the Rothschilds from the left was very much based around their wealth and not necessarily their Judaism. The Judaism was part of it, but it was much more the concentration of wealth. And these movements that we traditionally think of as leftist, socialism, anarchism, they were very anti-Rothschild. They were anti-Semitic as well, but they were specifically anti-Rothschild. You have uh, major writers in socialism and anarchism talking about how the Jews needed to be deported, how the Rothschilds were destroying the natural beauty of France. Uh, it, it's very much bound up in what we now think of as a traditionally leftist area, which was socialism in the late 1840s. Can we be critical of the Rothschilds then or now, uh, Mike, and not fall into the, the sewer of anti-Semitism? Oh, absolutely. I, I think that there are a number of very questionable decisions that the Rothschilds made. You know, I write about in the book how one of the heirs of the, the British line of the family, Natty Rothschild, helped fund the De Beers Mining Company. They were massively bound up with Cecil Rhodes and the oppression of the Cape Colony. 
there are any number of criticisms you can make about the Rothschilds even now. They've been bound up with people like Oleg Deripaska. They've uh, committed tax violations in, in Switzerland. You know, they are not above criticism or scrutiny any more than anybody else. It's just the problem that that criticism and scrutiny almost always immediately falls back on anti-Semitic tropes. Mike, I don't know if you saw, uh, did you see the Lehman Brothers uh, uh, play? Uh, I saw it in London. No, I didn't. It's interesting that I thought it was an excellent play. Most of the people actually, I think, uh, would agree who saw it. But there was some criticism suggesting that the Jewishness of the Lehman Brothers was overplayed and it became uh, an anti-Semitic play. How openly Jewish were the Rothschilds? I'm guessing that for most 19th century wannabe German aristocrats, they at least flirted with Christianity one way or the other. The Rothschilds were more visibly Jewish than a lot of other German families, especially ones of Jewish origin. A lot of these families converted, a lot of them assimilated. The Rothschilds never did. They were always very uh, wedded to their Judaism. They were very philanthropic toward Jewish causes. I wouldn't say that they were... Um, particularly outwardly orthodox or anything like that. And a lot of them intermarried. Uh, so I don't, I don't think you had that level of observance, but I think they were more Jewish than a lot of other families in that vein, such as Bering or Warburg, Guggenheim. Uh, I think the Rothschilds probably became the most visibly Jewish of those families. They were, as you said at the beginning, uh, based in Frankfurt and the, the Western part of Germany. Germany, of course, in the 1840s wasn't a state. Perhaps you might say something about their role in the 1848 revolutions and the relative anti-Semitism in the western part of Germany versus the eastern parts before sure. and after unification. Sure. So the, 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 the 1848 revolutions were this uh, uprising of socialist thought, and there was a, a great deal of scrutiny put on wealth concentration. It's not unlike what we're what we're seeing today with this very uh, militant awareness of income inequality. And there were attacks on Rothschild properties. Uh, one of the Rothschilds uh, felt like he might have to flee France because he was being attacked. There were bricks thrown through their windows. You know, there there were riots. Now, what happened in 1848 is that it eventually burned out. And what you find with these spasms of anti-Semitism is that they're very vocal they're very concentrated. In this case, it was very concentrated in Paris, somewhat in Germany, but much more in France. And then it sort of dies down as culture moves on to somebody else, but then it comes back. So one of the things I chart in the book is that in 1890 in France, there is again a massive, massive spasm of anti-Semitism based around the Dreyfus affair, based around the uh, a German Jew, uh, French Jewish artillery officer who uh, was uh, suspected of giving classified plans to the Germans. This caused a decade-long uh, affair. Jewish uh, magazines up, up against Gentile magazines. It was an enormous argument, and then it eventually burns out. But what happens is we, we move the needle to making anti-Semitism more and more acceptable, and eventually this sets the stage for the years between the First and Second World War. I want to get to those in a second, but you, you noted that the 1848 revolution was socialist. That's not entirely true, certainly for the revolution in Frankfurt. Uh, what, what were the Rothschilds? I know it perhaps speaking collectively is, is a little dangerous, but what was their opinion of political reform, of democracy? You know, the Rothschilds from everything that I have read were much more focused on Jewish emancipation 
than on uh, sort of the comings and goings of the of the politics of the era. What they served as, though, were the essentially the private bankers of royalty and of prime ministers. So they were very embedded in keeping the class structures the way that they were. You know, they they are the ones that Disraeli went to to get a loan to buy up the Egyptian share of the Suez Canal. They had a relationship with the most powerful people, and that wasn't something that that they were going to give up. That's not something most people would give up. But their focus much more was on making Europe more tolerable for Jewish families. Uh, you, you know, you had uh, Lionel Rothschild, who was elected to the British House of Commons, but he was never sworn in because he refused to be sworn in with a Christian oath. Uh, it took him, I think, well over a decade to finally take his seat. So there was a, a sense of trying to make life better in Europe for Jews, but also trying to keep their position of power. And it was a hard line for them to walk. And did they become this international network? You, you mentioned Lionel uh, Rothschild in, in, in the UK. They had, um, they had bases in France, in Paris, in Frankfurt, of course, in London, eventually in the United States. Were they as international as some of their detractors suggest? They were very European. The you know the old canard is that on his deathbed, Mayor Amschel ordered his five sons to go to the financial capitals of Europe and take over. That's not really what happened. But his sons did all eventually, some after Mayor died, move to the biggest financial capitals of Europe, to Vienna, to Naples. And they started these branches of the Rothschild banks. Now, the Naples branch ended, I think, in the 1890s. The Vienna branch didn't survive. The and these were merchant war. banks. These right. weren't retail banks. No, no, no. They were not retail banks. Banking, essentially, in that day was one family has a lot of money and loans it out. This was not the joint stock banking that we now have where uh, investors make deposits and then people will get loans from that bank at an interest rate. The Rothschilds actually really struggled to keep up with that. They were very set in their ways. They were uh, very wedded to the idea of loaning physical gold. And when you talk about the Rothschilds in the United States, it's really much more a legacy of missed opportunity. As the American economy grew, the Rothschilds were completely flummoxed by the differences between federal laws, state laws, local laws. They didn't understand how American banking was going to work without a central bank. So no member of the Rothschild family actually moved to the United States. Their, even their agent in New York was just an employee who happened to land there right after the panic of 1837 and saw that the family's agent there had closed. So he just stayed and uh, basically hung up his own shingle and decided that he was going to do business for the Rothschilds and for himself. So these Jewish bankers aren't quite as smart as some of their detractors argue. They're not quite as ubiquitous or all-knowing. You note, Mike, that the Rothschilds of Germany were much concerned with the Jewish community. The Jews of Europe of the time, of course, particularly in Germany, were very much divided between those who were Western or assimilated and the more traditional communities. What was the Rothschild family's take on that? Um, clearly, they weren't. They, clearly, they, they, they wanted people to maintain their, their Judaism. But what was their attitude towards the, the Orthodox communities of the East? I don't think the Rothschilds really had a lot to do with those communities. Uh, they were yeah, they must have known bit... about them. I mean, they oh, were they did. They... of Jews to the East. They definitely did. And 
one of the things that you find when you are really diving into some of the biographies of the family, some of the archival letters, is that there is not a lot of family unity at this point. The idea of the Rothschilds as these five arrows that were unbreakable when they were together, that really ended with the deaths of the sons and the grandsons of Mayor Amschel. They were bitterly divided about uh, immigration, about Zionism, about politics. So it's, it's really hard to talk about what the family thinks of things because you really have to go into all of the different stories. You had some family members who wanted to create Jewish, you know, fun, fun Jewish communities in far flung parts of Eastern Europe. Others didn't want anything to do with it. Others wanted to concentrate their, their wealth building in Western Europe. There, there is not a lot of uh, decision making done as a whole once those maybe that second generation of, uh, of family members is gone. Just as they were probably divided on East and West and capitalism and socialism, I, I'm guessing they were pretty much divided on Zionism as it developed in the early part of the 20th century. So before we get to the relevance of uh, your book in, in, in the US today, uh, and I want to take a break in a second, Mike, what happened to the Rothschilds during the 30s and then the 40s? Were they, uh, did they, did they, did they understand what was about to happen? Did, given their mobility and wealth, were most of them able to escape Germany? Most of them were able to escape. Um, many from Germany, many from Austria, many from France. You know, they had the means to leave. And of course, many, many other Jews didn't. Uh, they, they saw what was going on, but they really had no power to stop it by that point. The legendary Rothschild diplomacy, this idea of, well, we'll just lend enough money to make sure that there's not a war that that was gone. That was long gone. Even, even before the second world war going into the first world war, it was JP Morgan who made the massive Anglo French loan to, uh, to keep the war going in the first couple of years, the Rothschilds had long since lost their ability to do that, but some of them escaped to America. Some of them stayed up until the last minute. A few of them didn't make it out. Uh, one of the stories I write about in the book is the Austrian head of the Rothschilds in Vienna, Louis de Rothschild, was taken hostage by the Gestapo, and he was held for well over a year. And he was finally uh, essentially rescued with the largest known ransom that has ever been paid. Uh, they were they were essentially powerless to do anything other than run with their money. Your book is about 200 years of conspiracy theories. Historians have been arguing for the last almost 100 years about whether or not the fascists and the Nazis in particular were different from previous anti-Semitic populist movements in Europe in the 19th and early 20th century. In terms of the Rothschilds, did the, did the Nazis see them and place them in the same context as the conspiracy anti-Semitic conservative conspiracy theorists of the 19th century, or did the, the Nazis reinvent or did they invent a new kind of Rothschild in their febrile imaginations? They really uh, played on existing tropes and stereotypes. They used the uh, classic blood libel canard, you know, the idea that Jewish uh, rabbis would kidnap Christian children and bake their matzah, bake their blood into matzah. They used the protocols of Zion the argument. Protocols of the elders of Zion were uh, massively reprinted in the early years of the Nazi regime. They used legends like the eternal Jew, you know, the, the Jew who's doomed to wander the, the earth until the second coming. They knew that their audience would know what those stories were. 
and they played upon them mercilessly. They played upon the idea that Nathan Rothschild uh, profited off of the outcome of the Battle of Waterloo. They profited off. They used the idea that the Rothschilds sent their sons to take over Europe. That you know to to infect themselves into the British plutocracy. They understood the way many Germans saw the Rothschilds, and of course, this propaganda doesn't immediately take the form of extermination. It takes the form of scapegoating. It takes the form of setting them apart from other real Germans. And we see the same thing today. It's not about mass killing. It's about priming your audience to believe that these people are not of us. They are polluting our line. They, they are stealing from us. They are stabbing us in the back. Then you eventually get to mass extermination when you pound that drum long enough and hard enough. I want to get to a break uh, in one second, Mike. But one final question before then, and then I'm, after the break, we're going to talk about today and the Rothschilds. But you mentioned the stabbing in the back, and of course, the Nazi ideology was strengthened because of the First World War and the theory that the German army was stabbed in the back. What happened with the Rothschilds at the during and at the end of the First World War? Were they moving capital? Were they involved in any way in the war or the peace? No, they had no real involvement. They had no ability to make the kinds of loans that the Allies needed. Um, Rothschild served on both sides of the First World War. Uh, they served for England. One Rothschild lost a leg fighting for Austria. They, they were as German as anybody else and as Austrian as anybody else. This idea that they... Uh, conspired with the the plutocrats of America to stab the German fighting man in the back that all came later. We are talking with Mike Rothschild, author of a really interesting and important new book, Jewish Space Lasers, not Jewish Space Ladies. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe that's that the next the title of your next book, Mike. Yeah. Uh, we're going to take a short break. I want to thank our sponsors, uh, Liberties, Quarterly Journal of Culture and Politics. We're going to run a short ad for Liberties, and then we'll be back with Mike. And I want to talk about the Rothschilds today in the America of the 2020s. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. That's libertiesjournal.com if you want to check it out. Actually, Mike, I think you'll enjoy this. We'll get you a, get you a complimentary subscription. Fantastic. Um, so even the Nazis didn't come up with the idea of Jewish space lasers. <laughs> Tell us about this, this concept, uh, which is, is, is bemusing. And intriguing. What is a, a Jewish space laser? So th this is the idea that the the Jews generally, or the Rothschilds specifically, have the ability to control the weather, to start forest fires, to make it snow, to uh, create earthquakes. This is a, a sort of a classic conspiracy theory, and, and we're seeing it particularly now with this spate of wildfires that we've been having over the last. 10 years or so, this idea that they are not caused by climate change, but that they are being caused by uh, space-borne laser weapons that are burning up our forests so that the, the bad people can 
grab the land or, you know, make money off the climate change scam or whatever it is. So this particular uh, phrase, Jewish space lasers, comes from a post by now Congresswoman, then private citizen Marjorie Taylor Greene. And this is a 2018 Facebook post that she made about the campfire in California, which is one of the most devastating wildfires the state's ever had, alleging that a satellite owned by a laser power generating startup had been somehow used by Pacific Gas and Electric, who had a board member who was also a senior vice president at Rothschild Inc. in a conspiracy with then Governor Jerry Brown and the husband of California Senator Dianne Feinstein to clear land away for a 70-something billion dollar high-speed rail boondoggle. And isn't that interesting? Now, Marjorie Taylor Greene's Facebook post is incomprehensible. I've read it many times, and I still don't really make a lot of sense out of it because the plot that it alleges is totally incoherent. But she never uses that phrase. She never says Jewish space laser. She never says Jewish. She says the Rothschilds, Rothschild Inc. And isn't that interesting? And of course, she doesn't have to say Jewish. She knows that the people reading this, this post, and it's probably not that many people who read it because nobody knew who she was, that the people reading this know what Rothschild Inc. means. That she doesn't have to say Jewish. That came in the coverage of the post, which wasn't discovered until about three years later. After she'd already been sworn in in Congress, a researcher finds this uh, archived Facebook post and it goes crazy on social media. There's hashtags, there's memes, there's all kinds of things. Everybody has a big laugh about it. But I think we obscure that this is a now member of Congress who is essentially blaming a wealthy Jewish family for a massive forest fire that they had absolutely nothing to do with. She's not interested in the real causes. She's not not interested in climate change. She's interested in blaming somebody else for it. And whether you're talking about, you know, uh, Christian, you know, pollution of a Christian bloodline or the second world war stab in the back or a forest fire. It always comes down to let's blame the wealthy Jews. But in this sense with Marjorie Taylor Greene, who knows nothing, I don't think she knows anything about anything, but certainly she doesn't know anything about 19th century Europe. No. Rothschild is just an adjective. It's not, right. it's just a term. Right. It's a name that means money. And one of the things I wanted to do with this book is figure out why. Why does, why does this name, more than any other historically wealthy family, why is this the name that's used? What, what did they really do? And then, of course, in the case of this ridiculous Facebook post, they didn't do anything. Mike, you, you've done all our dirty work. You look around the garbage on the Internet, and there's a lot of it. And you've been to all these sites. You've read the posts the tweets and all the uh, all the rest of the, the garbage uh, of, of this uh, sewage. How, how much do the Rothschilds come out? You've mentioned Marjorie Taylor Greene, but it, is this a term that gets thrown around a lot on, um, on Twitter, on Facebook, um, and elsewhere? Constantly. Uh, they, their name is still evoked all the time. Um, Alex Jones has mentioned the Rothschilds I think on something like 1,300 episodes of InfoWars. If you go onto Twitter- 1,300 
times he's mentioned the Rothschild? 1,300 episodes, many of which mentioned them multiple times. I, I didn't count them all. There's a, a But he wasn't talking about you. He was talking oh. about the German side of the family. Right. Well, he, he has talked about me a little bit recently. But most of that is Lord Rothschild this, uh, Mayor Amschel Rothschild that. You know, most of it is just stuff that's either totally taken out of context or completely made up. But there is a relentless drumbeat of mentioning that. They are all over Twitter. If you go to Twitter right now and just put in Rothschilds, you're not going to find me. You're going to find memes about the Rothschilds having $500 trillion and funding both sides of every war since Napoleon. You're going to find just absolutely hateful conspiracy theories. You're going to find accusations that they are working with the Rockefellers, with George Soros, with the Illuminati, every, every front group you can imagine for whatever organized chicanery you can find. Somebody on social media right now is claiming the Rothschilds are doing it. So they are very much a going concern. They are very much the, the catchphrase that a lot of people use when they think about Jewish power. Why don't they just talk about Soros? Soros is another enormously influential, divisive figure. Why waste their time with, with the Rothschilds? There's just an abstraction that no one even knows who they are or what they represent. Well, they do. They, they talk about Soros quite a bit, but you can only talk about Soros so much. And what, they, what these people like to do is they link everybody together. They link Soros, the Rothschilds, Bill Gates, Klaus Schwab. The, the more believable conspiracy theory is always the one that involves more people and has uh, more dirty dealings. Gates isn't even Jewish. Right. Gates isn't That's Jewish. Not no, Gates isn't Jewish. Klaus Schwab isn't Jewish. Uh, Klaus Schwab's father worked for IG Farben, you know, the, the Nazi. Uh, this comes back to maybe my degree of skepticism when it came to your last book, the QAnon book. So what? So these people sit in their basements and fantasize about the Rothschilds or the Soroses or other abstract Jewish conspiracies, but does it really matter? I think it does. I think you have a mainstreaming of anti-Semitism that's done through wealthy families like Soros, like Rothschild. And we have seen mass shooters in their manifestos reference George Soros. George Soros had a pipe bomb mailed to his house. He's, you know, he has to basically travel everywhere with a security retinue because of all the threats he gets. And those threats boil down to more, to more uh, middle-class Jews. We're seeing a spike in anti-Semitic incidents. And it's, it's not just memes and tweets, it's violence. Uh, here in Los Angeles, we've seen swastikas spray painted on synagogues. We've seen uh, kosher restaurants attacked. Uh, Anti-Semitism is becoming much more mainstream and much more acceptable. And what's happening is that it's not couched in a lot of the equivocation that you would see even in the 70s and 80s when you would have somebody like pat robertson say well it's not all it's not all jews i love jews i love israel but it's these power brokers it's the rothschilds and the illuminati in frankfurt in 1789 and he's laundering the protocols of the elders of zion so you have these families used as an example of what the jew can do to you and it's it's enormously impactful, and we've seen the we've seen the impact that this has had, especially in the United States and in England over the last few years. But is this any different from any of the other racist or conspiracy movements online? We did a show earlier uh, this week with a writer from New Zealand and an Asian woman who 
told me that when she was eight, she got spat at by white Australian men for being uh, uh, an immigrant from Cambodia. Um, American history, of course, is dominated by uh, racism against the African-Americans. Is there something special about this hostility to the Jews or is it just symbolic? It's definitely symbolic and it's also historical. We've seen thousands of years of this. We've seen the accusations that the Jews killed Christ. This is used as fodder for pogroms. It's used for as fodder for expulsions. And maybe that's not happening now, but it doesn't take much. You know, we, we've well, it seen- does take a lot. I mean, I, I, again, I'm not convinced that, I mean, you mentioned uh, spray painting swastikas on walls. There have been one or two tragic cases of murder, but generally um, this is all in theory rather than practice, isn't it? I don't think so at all. I I think the the existence for Jewish people in the West right now is perilous. We've seen perilous. Oh, I think so. We've seen Nazi rallies in Jacksonville. We've seen uh, incidents of anti-Semitism all over the place in the United States. I, I don't fear being uh, thrown into a camp, but I, I don't want to reveal being Jewish in certain parts of this country. I'm, un, I'm uncomfortable with it. And I think that it's, it doesn't take much to move the needle from uh, simple griping or conspiracy theories to organized violence. We've seen it happen over and over and over. It's happening to other communities in the US. It's happening to the trans community right now. People are very good at being led to hating people that they don't really know much about. And it's happened more to Jews than probably any other group. Doesn't, it, it's not happening as much in terms of physical violence now, but that could change. What do these people want to do to the Rothschilds, a.k.a. the Jews? Do they want to throw them out? Do they want to put them in jail? Do they want to open new gas chambers? Some have talked openly about the expulsion of Jews in the United States. You've got far right influencers, you know, people like Nick Fuentes and Charlie Kirk, who have huge audiences, who are constantly talking about the danger of Jews, what should be done to Jews. Jews aren't real Americans. Jews can never be one of us. And this this gets through to people. And we've, we've seen this happen with people who have used George Soros as an excuse to commit violence against Jewish targets. You know, we've we've had synagogues shot up. This is this is real. It's it's not it's not Germany in 1938, but we've seen that it's it's not a long jump to get there eventually. Are there particular locations on social media that uh, have this this stench about them? You've mentioned Twitter and Facebook, but are there more obscure platforms which peddle in all this nonsense? Oh, sure. There's uh, there's places like Gab. There's places like 4chan, uh, there's Telegram, the, uh, you know, the secure messaging app that has become a, a home, home away from home for a lot of conspiracy influencers. These people are very good at carving out their own niches and monetizing these things and selling merchandise, selling podcast subscriptions. But it is creeping back on places like Twitter. With Musk taking over Twitter, it is noticeably more anti-Semitic. He himself is peddling in conspiracy theories. He himself is blaming the ADL for cutting Twitter's value in half. This is a really dangerous form of scapegoating. And Musk has a huge audience. A lot of these guys have really, really big audiences. And the bigger your audience, 
the more likely it is that someone is going to take this into their own realm and, and snap and commit an act of violence. Was the specter of the Rothschilds raised at all in January 6th? Were there manifestations of anti-Semitism? Oh, there definitely were. You had uh, Alex Jones standing outside the Capitol screaming about how uh, you know, he wasn't going to let Lord Rothschild interfere in, in the American that. election. Oh, yeah. He's screaming into a bullhorn. He's, you know, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and Lord Rothschild are not going to take away our freedom. Um, you know, it's it's all over the place. You don't you don't need to look very far when you're talking about far right extremism to find Jews as the culprit for what's going on in their lives. And have they identified Silicon Valley where Jews are uh, uh, overrepresented? One only has to think of uh, Mark Zuckerberg's and Sheryl Sandberg's of the world. Sure. They've identified Silicon Valley. They've identified the entertainment industry, academia, politics. You've got a lot of these groups, uh, the, you know, this one group, the Goyim Defense League. They're not they're not a big group. I think it's maybe less than 100 people, but they go to neighborhoods. They go to upper middle class neighborhoods. They pass around flyers that have all of the Jews who are controlling everything and they live stream themselves as they do it. They live stream themselves harassing people coming out of synagogues. It is, a, it is a form of information warfare that travels quickly and is almost impossible to stop uh, because these people are really good at doing it and doing it quickly and then just stopping before somebody gets wind of them. So they are very good at identifying who they believe is the real problem in American society and, and spurring people on to, to try to do something about it. So, Mike, finally, what are we going to do about it? I mean, are you in favor of more aggressive regulation and legislation to ban and punish anti-Semitism online? Well, I think that the, the answer, unfortunately, lies with the platforms. Um, now, you know, I've talked about this a lot with other online conspiracy theories. I am not comfortable with legislating away anti-Semitism. I, I think people have a right to be hateful and stupid. But I think that the platforms like Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, some of these other places, they also have the right to say, you can do that, but you can't do it here. And unfortunately, they, they just don't have the backbone to do it. They're too afraid of losing ad dollars. They're afraid of looking overly censorious. You know, we, we saw Mark Zuckerberg would not ban Alex Jones from Facebook because he didn't want to look like he was being too censorious of conservatives. So it is unfortunately up to the platforms to make clear rules and then enforce those rules. You know, we're not saying you can't, we're not saying you have to love Jews, but a platform like Twitter can say you can't post memes of Jews being thrown in ovens on our site. That's not okay. And unfortunately it is becoming more okay as the moderation on some of these sites eases up. Are there models of how social media companies should behave? I know that PayPal, for example, were one of the first companies to ban Alex Jones, uh, or certainly the sale of Alex Jones paraphernalia. Uh, what, what, what models, what positive models are there, Mike? Well, we've seen with Alex Jones that the deplatforming and the, uh, you know, removing him from some of these social media services, removing him from some of these payment services, it has a bottom line on him. And the other thing that ha that has a bottom line effect is lawsuits. Uh, Alex Jones is facing, uh, you know, a billion dollars in judgment from the Sandy Hook families who successfully sued him for relentlessly attacking them over a stretch of years. So it 
you know, there, there are legal remedies. I just don't think they're up to our government because our government doesn't quite understand how a lot of this stuff works and, uh, you know, struggles to apply these laws with any kind of even handedness. So it really is up to these companies and to private citizens who feel like they've been wronged. And when it, uh, of course, uh, comes to all this, what about, you, you talked about the mainstream of all this, how much has it infiltrated or infected the Republican Party? Uh, has Donald Trump ever talked about the Rothschilds? Donald Trump, to my knowledge, has never specifically mentioned the Rothschilds, but he's talked about Soros. And he, um, during the run-up to the 2018 midterms, he was sharing the conspiracy theories that Soros was funding migrant caravans that were coming you know, to the Texas border. They were all going to vote Democratic, and Soros was behind this whole thing. This was at the exact same time that the MAGA bomber was sending out pipe bombs. This was right around the time of the Tree of Life synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh, uh, which was inspired in part by George Soros's activism. So Trump has definitely thrown his, uh, thrown his bait in these waters. And of course, his, his media mouthpieces talk about it constantly. They're constantly using anti-Semitic tropes, constantly talking about Soros and globalists. I mean, if Donald Trump was on the show, I'm sure he wouldn't come on. He probably wouldn't be invited. But he would say, well, I've got not just uh, a Jewish son-in-law, but Jewish grandchildren. Can one? And how do we get beyond this criticizing Soros, for example? I mean, he's clearly no great fan of Donald Trump, but he's funding uh, a lot of progressive movements. Can one criticize a Soros or even a Rothschild without being anti-Semitic? Oh, sure. I, I you know, I, I think everybody can be criticized. Uh, I think George Soros absolutely has, has made business decisions that can be criticized. I talk in, in the book about the Rothschilds and their link to De Beers. I think all of that stuff is absolutely fair game. But when you're blaming these people for these outlandish conspiracy theories, when you're saying the Rothschilds, you know, funded both sides of, of the First World War and secretly paid for the Holocaust, you're not criticizing them. You're just attacking them. And there's, there's nothing constructive about it. Nobody's going to learn anything from it. Nobody's going to feel like they've been enlightened about, uh, you know, abuses of wealth and power. You're just attacking a prominent Jewish family. So it's totally possible to do it. It's just that most people don't do it. So finally, Mike, uh, when are the Jewish space ladies going to land on Earth and, and colonize us? <laughs> uh, maybe that's the uh, the after dark version of the book. <laughs> maybe that'll be in the paperback. 